Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Acts chapter 23 and verse 12 is where we're going to begin reading. I'm going to read through to chapter 24, verse 27. Every Sunday, week by week, the preacher's job, my job, is to help us see the big picture in our passage. We need the big picture, particularly this morning when we've got a long narrative like this in front of us. And it's very easy, isn't it, to lose sight of the wood for the trees when you're reading a long portion of Scripture. Here in front of us this morning is lots of drama, lots of details, lots of events. But what is God saying? Friends, that is the only job I have today, the only job to help us hear what God is saying to us in the Bible. And I hope week by week as we come to our sermon, as we come to the Bible, I hope that's what you think is about to happen. Not my ideas, not my cleverness, but what God is saying to us in these words in front of us. That's the question. John Newton, uh, the man who wrote Amazing Grace and other great hymns, he said this, I count it my honor and happiness that I preach to a free people who have the Bible in their hands. To your Bibles I appeal, I entreat, I charge you to receive nothing upon my word any further than I can prove it from the word of God. Isn't that wonderful? I charge you to receive nothing upon my word any further than I can prove it from the word of God. So what I want to charge you to receive today, what I, what I want to prove to you is that there is a big picture underlying this part of the story. You'll see that I've called the sermon the true big picture. There is a big picture driving how we're meant to read it. And all I want to get you to do today is to look at that big picture with me. It's very simple. And there are two parts to this big picture today. Two parts. So like I said, this is a long passage. So we're going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to read a bit, a part of the passage. Then I'm going to show you part of the big picture from what we've just read. And then we're going to read the rest of it. And again, I'll show you a little bit more of the big picture. So two readings, two parts to the sermon, if you like. We're going to read from chapter 23. And if you look at verse 12, you will see a new heading in your uh, Bible, whatever version you're reading. In my version, it says a plot to kill Paul, and it begins at verse 12. But here's the question. What difference would it make to what we're about to read if we included verse 11 at the start of the reading? These paragraph headings are often so unhelpful. They break up the flow, and we miss some of the things we're meant to have in mind. So I'm going to read from verse 11. What difference does this single verse make to everything I'm about to read? The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage. 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him. They have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him. Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias To his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's stop there. Did you spot it? Look at the difference verse 11 makes to the whole thing, the whole narrative that we've just read. Here's the difference I think verse 11 Makes. Here is the first point this morning, the first part of the big picture. Point, point number one, that there is an unseen Lord who rules the world we know. There is an unseen Lord who rules the world we know. 
And maybe today, friends, that is just what you need to know. The Jesus that you cannot see this morning and have not yet seen, nevertheless stands at your side and will never leave you, come what may. See, this is beautiful, really skillful narrating, beautiful storytelling. In verse 11, Jesus tells Paul the future, doesn't he? He tells Paul what's going to happen. He tells him in advance, you must testify also in Rome. So so think about that secret that we, the readers, have been led in on, on which the Jews in verse 12 don't know. You see it? We are meant to read from verse 12 onwards, smiling to ourselves, chuckling out loud if you want, as they plot to kill Paul. Look, make no mistake, this would, I'm sure, this would have been terrifying to Paul as it would have been to us. Can you imagine? It's one thing to have an enemy, isn't it? Or a couple of foes. People say if you've been attacked in the street or mugged or something like that, it takes you weeks to recover from. The idea that somebody wanted to cause you harm. Imagine here 40 people. 40 people on hunger strike until they see you dead. Oh, friends, we don't really know anything about opposition to the gospel, do we? We don't really know what suffering for Jesus is like. We know nothing about it, really, as bad as it can be sometimes. And yet, these evil men, evil religious men, notice, bent on a wicked scheme, what do they not know? That Jesus is taking Paul to Rome. We're meant to watch them plodding in the corner, binding themselves by an oath. And we're meant to be laughing to ourselves. Good luck with that, we say. What's going to happen? We know the outcome. They're not going to kill him. How is God going to rescue him? That's how we read this story. And so it unfolds. Look at it. Look at all the details. Look, Paul's nephew just happens to hear of the plan and he just happens to have a way into the barracks. Paul himself is able to set the wheels in motion so that by the time we get down to verse 23 and we hear the thunder of 70 horses and the marching boots of 200 soldiers, the clattering weapons of 200 spearmen, we know already what's going to happen. In stages, step by step by step, Paul is going to end up exactly where Jesus said he would be in Rome. And more than this, friends, have another smile again at Claudius Lysias's letter. This letter that he writes to Governor Felix. Politicians do this all the time, don't they? They have to take the credit for things that they haven't actually done. To cement their place at the top of the tree. A lot of his letter is accurate, but look at verse 27. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Last week, we saw that he didn't learn that Paul was a Roman citizen until after he had rescued Paul and until after he was about to have him flogged. John Stott, in his commentary, says, In Claudius Lysias's letter, nine of the principal verbs are in the first person singular. I did. I, I, I. Stott says, The letter was fairly honorable, 
but decidedly self-centered. And so, friends, Luke, in his writing, putting this story together, wants us to see the wood for the trees. He wants us to see the big picture driving the details. Here it is. Put all the might of Jerusalem with all its wicked assassins lying in wait. Put all of them in one hand and all the pride and arrogance of Rome with all its military might and judicial power and politicians wheedling for power. Put all of them together. And in the middle, in the mix, drop into the middle, tiny, insignificant preacher man, Paul, in prison, needing to be rescued from murderers, being transported with a letter that seeks to exalt the person who wrote it more than it seeks to help Paul's case. Look at Paul in there in the swirling morass of all these forces arrayed against him. And is he helpless? No. See the unseen Lord who stood by his side ruling the world we know. Isn't it amazing? Claudius Lysias knew nothing about Jesus standing at Paul's side, hadn't seen him. Forty assassins hadn't seen him. And yet Jesus rules the world. You will go to Rome. That's the big picture, friends. Jesus rules the world. Brothers and sisters, 2020, 2020, can we wait to get to 31st of December, midnight, to consign it to the past, to history? Luke says to us, friends, 2020, this is the year the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad. Can you say that? I don't want to say that. Trust me, it doesn't come naturally. But it's true. The unseen Lord rules this world we know. COVID is not an accident. It did not catch God napping. And there is nothing coming to you or to me outside his loving care that does not come from his fatherly hand. Why, Lord, why this here now for us? We don't know. Sometimes you have to take God's promises and just use them like a seatbelt, don't you, to buckle yourself in with them as you ride the roller coaster of life. Sometimes that's all you can do. Take God's promises and hold on to them tight with both hands. Sometimes it is only the promises of God that will keep you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always until the end of the age. The unseen Lord rules the world we know. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain. It is a promise, friends. As true as the promise to get Paul to Rome, Jesus' promise, think about it, to do away with pain, death, mourning. Three things we all want to be rid of. I will consign those things one day to the former things. They will be past. They will be gone. Here's one of my favorite promises in the whole Bible. Here, here are, personally for me, this is a rock under my feet always. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. Here are, here is a, a set of glasses for looking at the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. God is going to unite everything in Jesus. He's going to bring everything together under Christ. I think Paul wrote those words in Ephesians because of what he knows here, that the Jesus we cannot see is ruling a world we can see. What is God's plan for your life and my life? To bring everything together in Jesus. One day, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Dear friends, it's true that one day the whole of world history will be shown to be church history. You know that? The whole of world history will be shown to be church history. Every single event will be shown to be somehow part of God's plan to bring everything together under Christ. To redeem his people, to make the world new again. So so you watch the news and your heart is broken. What do you think to yourself? God is bringing everything together under Jesus. COVID, new restrictions, unending restrictions. God is bringing everything together under Jesus. Good news enters your life. Joy and happiness, marriage, job, success, children, promotion. God is bringing everything together under Jesus. You know, to our, to our young folks in our church family, you have had more upheaval and more upset and disappointment this year than I think you've ever known in your young, young lives. Isn't that right? For many of them, the three verbs are postponed, delayed, canceled. It's what's happened to life. And Paul's experience here is helping you to see that what God has promised to do, he will always do. And if he has promised to bring everything together under Jesus, then whatever is happening in your life and all that happens to you fits into that big picture. What you might not know yet is how or why this to achieve that end. But Jesus rules the world. Jesus rules the world. He's got you. Remember in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph says to his brothers, remember what they did to him, cast him into a pit, left him for dead, sold into slavery. Joseph meets his brothers decades later and says to them, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good. Evil makes a pit. The maker makes a well. It's how God works as he rules the world that we know. He can use even the evil intentions of people to bring about his good intentions. How does Jesus get Paul to Rome? Because of an evil plot to kill him. God can use even the evil intentions to bring about his good intentions. And every single part of your life and my life is being used by him to enable a universe one day to fall at his feet in adoration. There is an unseen Lord who rules the world we know. 
first part of the big picture. Here's the second one. Let's read from verse 1 of chapter 24. I'm going to give you the the big picture this time. See if you can see it as we read. Here's the second point. Number two, there is a risen king who rules the world to come. There is a risen king who rules the world to come. An unseen Lord who rules the world we know. And now look for this yourself as I read chapter 24, 1 to 27. A risen king who rules the world to come. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus, like chief prosecutor, the best man they had. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, since though, since through you, he's going to address Felix first, since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, a brutal governor who had crushed and murdered and killed many Jews, through your good governments, reforms are being made for this nation in every way. And everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague. He is someone who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, when the governor had nodded to him to speak... Paul replied, and look how different he is, no flattery to Felix, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me there disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they find when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, then I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. 
And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Courtroom drama, accusation and defense, one-to-one evangelism with Felix, the governor, But what's the big picture? In all the details, friends, Paul is pressing, pressing, pressing this. There is a risen king who rules the world to come. Friends, here is the big picture of life, the universe and everything. Jesus rules. Jesus rules. He rules the world even though we cannot see him. And he rules the world to come because God has raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heaven where he will come again. We said it together, didn't we? From there he will come, what did we say? To judge the living and the dead. Oh, what a big picture. What a hope. Just look how Paul gets there. Look at the details in it. Listen to Paul's gospel. Listen to how it works. Paul is accused of three things. You notice he's accused of being a public nuisance. He's accused of being a religious innovator. In other words, he leads the sect of the Nazarene. And he's accused of being a sacrilegious barbarian. He tried to profane the temple. So three things, he causes riots, he introduces new ideas, he desecrates sacred space. Three charges, so three responses. Number one, verses 10 to 12. I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days, never once did I stir up a riot. It's a very important part of Christian witness, isn't it? Very important part that Christian people always say, we are never ever the ones on the streets throwing bottles, breaking windows. Come what may, it's not us. It's not what we do. Second charge, verses 14 to 16. How am I a religious innovator when I worship the God of our fathers? I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Everything these men believe, I believe. Verses 17 to 18, the third charge How on earth do I profane the temple when I entered it purified? I followed the law. I came to bring offerings. It's very clear, isn't it? It's very exact. It's very compelling. But what is right at the heart of it? What is at the heart of Paul's defense? Did you catch it? Verse 15. I am not a religious innovator because I believe the same Bible these men believe. These men accusing me. Here's what we believe together. Verse 15. There will be a resurrection of both the... Look at verse 21. Verse 21 of chapter 24. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The Jewish faith, the Old Testament scriptures are full of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 
It was written in the pages of the Jewish Bible. It was everywhere. Listen to Isaiah 29. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a a dew of light and the earth will give birth to its dead. All Paul is doing, imagine him standing there with an open Bible saying, look, friends, I believe what you believe. The dead will rise. But here's the thing, what you are looking forward to only in hope, I can tell you has begun to happen for God has raised Jesus from the dead. Our Messiah has died and is risen again. He is alive. That's why I'm on trial today, Paul is saying. Everything comes down to this, the great hope we have together, that the dead will be raised. Does the resurrection of Jesus prove that that is underway already? Is Jesus the first fruits of this, the one who has gone ahead of us? You say you believe in the resurrection of the dead, Paul is saying to them. You say you believe it. So what do you make of Jesus's empty tomb? That's what Paul is doing. And more than this, you see in verse 15, you see there is just a hint of judgment to come, isn't there? Having a hope in God, which these men accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And that is exactly what Paul says in verse 24. There he is reasoning with Felix, his wife Drusilla sitting beside them. He reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. We know from historians that Drusilla had a reputation for ravishing youthful beauty and that in fact Felix had seduced her from her rightful husband. She was in fact Felix's third wife. That's why we have verse 25, isn't it? Righteousness, self-control, And the coming judgment. Do you see what the gospel tells us, friends? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows us that there will be life after death. And so what we do in life will echo in eternity. There will be judgment, Felix. There is judgment to come. There is a heaven to be gained. A hell to be shunned. Why does it matter who I sleep with, when I sleep with them, and why and how I sleep with them? Who, when, why, how? Why am I not free to answer all those questions the way that I want to answer? Because Jesus rules the world. Jesus rules the world. He is the risen king who rules the world to come. And because he is risen, you will meet him, Felix. You will meet him. I will meet him. Brothers and sisters, can you see this morning this big picture? All the verses paint this picture large and bold and bright and clear for us. Paul is standing announcing to the world, to anyone who will hear him, Jesus rules the world. Jesus rules the world. This world that God made, that we broke, Jesus fixes it by entering it, entering it all the way down to the very graves that we will one day enter. But he entered the grave to destroy death and stand on the other side of it as our risen judge. 
And when you tell people this, some people, in fact, many people, well, they do with this what Felix does with it, don't they? Verse 25. Go away. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll think about this again. You know, it's true, isn't it? It's true. People don't care about otherworldly religion so long as it stays otherworldly. You can believe, people let you believe all sorts of weird stuff, don't they? Like the virgin birth or angels or afterlife in the sky when you die. You can believe all sorts of weird stuff so long as you don't believe anything about this world. Do you see it? Do you see what Paul is doing? I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the just and the unjust. Just And because of that, Felix, it affects my bedroom, my wallet, the way I live and speak, the way I raise my children, the things I do and don't do. And Felix is saying, no, hang on, hang on a minute. It's, it's a religion. It's not meant to affect any of that. It's not meant to affect real life, is it? Not meant to affect business, the boardroom, the classroom, the lecture theater. You know, it's interesting here, isn't it? Because Paul believes that Jesus has been raised from the dead, because he really, truly believes it happened, what is Paul classed as belonging to? You catch the charge from Tertullus, he is classed as belonging to a sect, a cult. And the world over today, friends, the world over, mainline Christian denominations with all their size and all their strength and all their power and all their bureaucracy do exactly the same thing. The world is full of men and women in dog collars and bishops' mitres who will laugh you out of time for believing that Jesus' tomb is empty. Can I say to us very clearly, very simply, if you believe that Jesus' tomb is empty, if you believe that there was a moment in time when his blood began to flow again, when his cold, dead heart began to beat again, when the heavy air surrounding death turned to living breath again, if you believe that because of his resurrection, so there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust at the last judgment, then you are an authentic Christian. I believe, we said together, in God the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in Jesus Christ crucified, died, buried, descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. It is the very essence of what Christians believe, to believe that the tomb is empty. And because of that, there will be a judgment. You know, I saw I saw on Twitter this week one of these funny things where uh, people ask, describe your job in a way that nobody's ever heard or thought about before. Something like this. And someone put this question to a minister. Tell me, tell me about your job in a way I wouldn't expect to hear an answer. Here's what he said. My job, he said, I tell people they're going to die. And then I tell them how to die so that they don't actually die. It's good, isn't it? It's good for ministers. We only work one day a week, so we come up with things like that. I tell people they're going to die, 
And then I tell them how to die so that they don't actually die. Isn't that what Paul does to Felix? You're going to die. There will be a judgment of the just and the unjust. And friends, brothers and sisters, if that is true, oh, if it's true, do you know anything better? Do you know the old hymn, Jerusalem the Golden? Jerusalem the Golden with milk and honey blessed. I know not, oh, I know not what joy awaits us there. What radiance of glory. What joy beyond compare. I do not know what is there, the hymn says, but it says, I know this, Jesus is there. And all those who have died in Jesus are there. And for many of you today, friends, for many of you, that is more precious than you can ever say. Here's the hymn. They stand, those halls of Zion, they stand all jubilant with song and bright with many an angel and all the martyr throng. The prince is ever in them. The daylight is serene. The pastures of the blessed are decked in glorious sheen. There is the throne of David, and there from all care released, the song of those that triumph, the shout of them that feast, and they who with their leader have conquered in the fight forever and forever are clad in robes of white. I want to say to us today, dear church family, as we limp along together through these days, And you find yourself wondering sometimes if you even have the strength or the resolve or the desire to keep holding on to Jesus. Never, ever lose sight of this big picture. There is a heaven to be gained, a hell to be shunned. For there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. One day, out of the heavens, he will come. Darkness will vanish, all sorrow will end, and rulers will bow at his throne. Amen.